I think there's few topics that are trickier to navigate in contemporary society, whether it's in business or outside, than race today. And so I think being incredibly candid and authentic is extremely important. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. A social psychologist uses data to reframe the conversation around race in corporate America. Evan Affelbaum is Professor of Management and Organizational Studies here at MIT Sloan. He uses behavioral science to show the challenges and potential of diversity. I spoke with Evan about how we discuss differences in the workplace and how it affects whether people stay or leave. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As a social scientist, you study diversity in the workplace. Tell us about your work and why it matters. So the gist of my work is to really understand the best intuitions that people and organizations have about how to make interactions go more smoothly, how to hire a more diverse workforce, and really when those intuitions go awry and people's best efforts backfire. Um, so analytics has increasingly become a component of uh, what uh, myself and, and collaborators do. Uh, you know, one interesting example is recently we were trying to look at how organizations talk about diversity and mm -hmm. race uh, and gender publicly and whether employees from underrepresented groups like racial minorities and women actually stay in the organization or decide to leave. So give us an example of how an organization might talk about diversity in a certain way that would encourage current employees to stay or that might encourage them to leave. Sure. So we find there are two fundamentally different ways that organizations try to make a promotional case about creating an environment that's inclusive. One we call value indifference and one we call value inequality. Okay. Value indifference essentially is shining a spotlight on differences in diversity. Uh, having different people here leads to better decisions, more creativity, there's a business case, it enriches some culture. A list of things that suggest why differences are good for business, good for the culture. Value and equality is quite different. It essentially says we here are the brightest, smartest people, the most hardworking, and we're unified by this broader organizational vision and culture. We can all advance and have equal access to career opportunities, irrespective of what we look like, where we come from. So in a sense, it's look beyond differences and focus on similarities to some degree. And so you ask her which is better. Uh, we kind of entered this research question thinking maybe there would be one best mm -hmm. one. Um, and so what I think is the most interesting and uh, aspect of this research is we find out that both can work quite well. It just depends on who is being targeted by these messages. And so the question really becomes, when or under what conditions is one of these approaches useful? And you recently published a study on uh, how the way businesses frame their policies around diversity can lead to different results. Uh, tell us a little bit about that particular study and uh, what did you find? So we have access in this case to public diversity statements from 151 of the biggest law firms in the United States. And if you look at big law firms at the associate level, which is sort of the junior faculty level uh, for, for uh, associates in law firms, <laughs> you know, there's often 35 up to all, over half the associate class 
uh, are women. Right. African-Americans are in far, far smaller number and often less than 5%. And so what we find is that the numerical representation of that group, let's say women or racial minorities in an organization, is a critical factor determining which of these two ways of framing diversity will be best. Mm. So what we often hear today in contemporary organizations is this kind of value indifference case that I mentioned. So differences are better, there's a business case for diversity. We find that that type of approach can be sort of engaging and uh, lead certain groups to perform better when they are about 30 to 40% of the organization. So they're in sizable numbers. It's kind of, there is this comfort with saying, okay, we are different from everyone else, but we want to be valued and respected for our differences. And we want everyone to, uh, we want the organization to essentially make a case for why our differences are a critical piece of this organization. But I want you to imagine that same sort of call to focus on diversity and differences in an organization where there's only two black people right. out of 100, okay? Now, that same call for differences, even if it's well-intentioned, mostly serves to alienate or further uh, make uncomfortable the couple individuals uh, who are in this organization who are already very aware that they're different from everyone else, in this case, in terms of ethnicity. And really the last thing these individuals want is for people to start focusing more attention on that and to begin questioning why they were there in the first place. Was this an affirmative action hire? Did the person really earn their spot? And so what this really raises more generally is you have to think about the concerns that different underrepresented groups have within the organization. We talk about diversity approaches like there is this one size fits all, there's a kind of a silver bullet that's gonna just, if we figure out how to word it correctly, every stigmatized or underrepresented group will react as sort of one in the same. And what this suggests is that when you're like 30 or 40%, you may feel a little bit more comfortable with your difference and really want to be acknowledged and respected for that. Mm -hmm. but. When you are 5% or less, the much more proximate concern is fitting in and belonging and being accepted as an organizational insider, as somebody who's earned that spot. You know, this suggests that um, you got to understand what concerns people have and managers need to be sort of addressing those concerns with specifically tailored messages. Okay. So what happens if you belong to more than one minority group? So for example, if you're an African-American female? That's a great question. We ha actually have some data on this. So what we find is that African-American women respond more similarly to African-American men than they do to white women. And we think that's the case because race is a much more salient characteristic in these settings. People tend to self-identify in terms of visible characteristics that really are distinctive or sort of stick out in that environment. Okay. And I think that based on the knowledge that others see them first as black and then second as a woman, that ends up being a more powerful feature to which they respond to. But, but we also have interesting data where we can encourage African-American women to remind them about uh, being a mother or characteristics associated with a more feminine identity, and we can sort of shift their responses, which sort of suggests that these are malleable and maybe even within organizations, certain policies, being in certain uh, committees, serving on certain roles that, that increase or decrease 
their membership in these categories could make the different messages become more or less effective. So you're finding really that it's the situational differences rather than inherent differences that are causing different groups to respond differently. That's exactly right. And I think that that's such an important feature of this research because it really suggests that, you know, certainly not to say that white women and African-Americans uh, are the same, but they have similar concerns when they're in 5% or when they're in 40%. And that suggests that those numbers are driving a large part of the concerns that they have. Right. Organizations have certainly been talking about diversity for a long time, uh, but it's become, I, I think, a very important topic of late. How is your work currently being applied in the business world? Well, I hope it's being applied. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I see a lot of organizations, a lot of goodwill actually there that maybe wasn't there decades ago. Mm -hmm. um, people are concerned with more than just not being sued. They really do see uh, making diversity work is something critical because irrespective of whether this is something that morally or politically they favor, the fact of the matter is, again, if we take the law firm example, half the class of the very best lawyers who are graduating from law school are women, maybe even more than half in right. certain cases. And so when you start thinking forward and planning for what contemporary organizations will look like, where the best talent is going to be coming from in the future, it involves non-white males and it involves figuring out how to speak to those individuals. And those individuals are going to be less likely to come to an organization that has nobody who looks like them. Right. What are some of the pitfalls that companies should avoid when talking about race and diversity in their ranks? Well, you know, I think authenticity is incredibly important mm -hmm. in this domain. This is a, a, an area that is fraught with mistrust and skepticism. I think there's few topics that are trickier to navigate in contemporary society, whether it's in business or outside than race today. Right. And so I think being incredibly candid and authentic is extremely important. When you see things going wrong are times when people claim to have a magically inclusive and diverse workplace and are promoting certain things in pamphlets that have a magical rainbow of diversity. Right. And it's just not like that on the ground when people enter the organization. I think that breeds skepticism and mistrust. So what got you interested in studying diversity in the workplace originally? Well, if we go way back, so I'm, I, you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, so the the idea of exclusion uh, was very much weaved into my childhood. We were always learning about the ways in which our family was different. But, you know, I, I came to grad school sort of much later on, very interested in the funny things white people did when topics of race came up <laughs> in everyday conversation. That was it. And it was so fascinating to me and also tricky for me. It's something that I myself... Uh, I don't know if I should say struggled with, but was really unsure about, mm -hmm. you know, talking about race. It's why was it that we hear when people describe someone as black, they, if they say it at all, they whisper, right? Um, why is it that, you know, in situations that are not contentious or shouldn't be contentious, sort of, there's no race related allegations. There's no contentious aspect of the situation. It could even be just describing someone that people bend over backwards, pretend they don't see race. And so it was this, tendency for individuals, and it wasn't only white individuals I found out, mm -hmm. to struggle with what we should or shouldn't be talking about and how to make interactions go smoothly that ultimately evolved into sort of a more complex interest in 
how organizations, academic institutions, policies wrestle with the same tension between focusing and talking about differences versus overlooking them. So in this country, as individuals, how can we apply your work and your findings to our cultural conversation, um, to how we discuss things like Black Lives Matter, Oscar So White, and other diversity movements uh, with our friends, our family, with internet strangers? Yeah, so that's a tough one. I mean, I think that one thing that I've learned is we have to do a better job listening. Um, you know, a key takeaway message from the research that I spoke about earlier is that groups have different concerns. Right. Managers, lay people alike need to be much more sensitive to where people are coming from, mm -hmm. why they would be concerned, and how those concerns would diverge from, from the ones that they hold. So I think that is a lesson that I've learned myself uh, within the research and one that I think can go a long way. I mean, when we collect data, many people want to achieve a situation in which race is something that is comfortable for people to talk about mm -hmm. and doesn't have to be a source of conflict. But the path to getting there is a little bit bumpy and people have very different ideas about how to do that. And I think a large part of this is that people are mostly attuned to their own concerns and what makes them afraid and much less able to step into other people's shoes and, and think about why uh, they may think about it differently. Mm -hmm. Evan, what's next for you and your research? So, you know, I'm going to try to continue to sort of press the envelope on the prescriptive end. You know, there's a lot of great research that has increased our awareness of sort of hidden pockets of bias, of prejudice at levels that we didn't know, things that really sort of point fingers at problems. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is not just awareness, but generate toolkits that help managers fix problems. Right. And I think that how to craft, for example, a culture around diversity is one tool in an arsenal to help do that. There are various different policies, um, programs that can be used. Data can help as well. And so there really is not a coherent, fully fleshed out framework, a sort of a pamphlet that you could hand a manager to say, here's what to do, right? And I think that really, really good research, empirically rigorous research is uh, is really needed in this space because there is a hunger. People do want to do the right thing. Many people do want to do the right thing. And so I think it is on us as researchers in this space to sort of provide data about what does versus does not work. Terrific. Evan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Evan Applebaum is Professor of Management and Organizational Studies at MIT Sloan. You can learn more about his work at evanapplebaum.com. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Join us next time for Data Made to Matter.